this is the Baileys. We know that's a proper <laughs> scream. <laughs> and then we see him like hurtling into view. Like he comes into the skyline and he's sitting on He's like, holy fuck. I just whipped on a skyhook. <laughs> the Baileys is supported by Awesome Woodies, sustainable handcrafted training tools for climbers available at Wild Earth, who are our other amazing supporter. Whatever adventure gear you need, that is where you'll find it. And Wild Earth's Brisbane store opens at the end of July. Go check it out. This is The Bail List. Hey, I'm Nicole Groves. When I started to tell people my idea for this podcast, I kept hearing over and over again that I needed to talk to Alex Mugenot. I knew him as a really strong boulderer, sport and trad climber in southeast Queensland. And he's actually already made a couple of cameos on here. He's been mentioned in episodes one and three of The Bail List. So I finally tracked him down to talk about his accomplishments in first ascenting and how his experiences establishing new routes over the years culminated in an ambitious and ongoing project at an ultimate climbing destination, Mount Warning. Now, we're going to talk a bit about aid climbing in the second half of this episode. It's essentially climbing a wall using the assistance of fixed or placed protection. Look it up on YouTube to see some good visual examples. It's how the majority of climbers will climb El Cap. There's a bit of discipline-specific lingo in this episode, so I'm going to jump in at times from the edit to give some explainers. Hey, I'm Alex Mugino. I've been climbing since 2013. What I'm mostly interested in these days is like sort of adventure climbing and yeah, venturing into the unknown, but I realistically, I like to climb everything, whether it's boulders, plastic, uh, you know, single-pitch sport climbing, multi-pitch, trad climbing. I, I just like to climb everything. Probably the thing that people uh, would know the most is uh, brown corduroy trousers because Vincent made that video. Um, yeah, so so probably that. But before that, people knew me as like the Tui Forest kid that would just <laughs> climb a lot of boulders at Tui Forest when nobody was doing it. <laughs> Hey, Alex. Hey, hey. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah, I'm going pretty well, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Hey, thanks for coming in for a chat. No worries. My pleasure. So I wanted to talk to you today mm. um, about a specific part of your climbing career because mm. you're a really accomplished rock climber. But one thing that you've been doing over the years as well is establishing a lot of climbing routes. Mm. Yep. Here and there. A little <laughs> bit. I don't, don't do it all the time, but yeah, it's one of the things I enjoy doing. And it's yeah. not really an everyday kind of thing is it it's it's a lot of prep and you know a lot of emotional and mental energy mm. goes into establishing roots mm. um but i'm interested to talk to you about um sort of one specific route that you've been working on but also kind of how that's um you know how all of your um mm. kind of establishing roots over the years mm. has led up to this current yeah. Uh, route that you're working on, mm. um, which is not, you know, not necessarily like a fail or a bail. It's more of a work in progress, right? Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Let's mm. talk about how you got into like establishing new climbing routes. Yep. Yeah, sure. Um, 
So yeah, a note on establishing roots for me, like I I don't mind bolting. Like and you know, the first couple of roots I put up were bolted roots. But it's oh I wanna sound lazy, but it's a bit of an effort, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I I just saw when I, you know, maybe three or four years into climbing, I wanted to start bolting and then I wanted to, you know, bolt everything and just finding crags and just put up 20 or so roots side by side, you know, just the sort of the same way that I approach climbing where I just want to tick everything. Um, but then I saw a couple mates spend a lot of time developing roots and that it just took so much time out of climbing. And then other goals in their climbing sort of got left by the wayside because you couldn't put as much effort into it or into training because it's so like exhausting. And so I haven't really done much bolt, yeah, bolting. Um, and now, like, there seems like there's heaps of people wanting to bolt roots. So I'm like, oh, I can let them do it, and I'll climb the roots after. Um, but what gets me really excited is like trad, trad first ascents and mm. the sort of adventure stuff. Um, and so, yeah, how did I start that? Hmm. Well, you when you started off climbing, mm. you were quite young, right? Like you were were you still in was, high school or just out yeah. of high school? Yeah, grade 12, so like 16, 17. Yeah, and you started climbing some pretty um, intense routes quite early on, right? I remember you saying last week or whenever we caught up that Mm. you climbed the governor pretty early on in your career. Was Mm. that kind of, um, you know, foray into adventure climbing part of the reason why you were interested in establishing some new adventure routes? Yeah, I think, so thinking back, the transition into climbing and first ascending was... Like the segue from that was the adventure stuff, and what I really, what part of what uh, really drew me to climbing was the adventure, and the fact that you're doing this thing that's like out of the norm. It's a little bit mysterious, and, and at the at the start, just bouldering in the forest is mysterious. It's like this different thing, and then then you start learning sport climbing, and you're going to places that other pe- you think that other people haven't gone before, but it turns out thousands of climbers have done those routes anyway, and um. And then I always enjoyed just like bush bashing around the bush and finding little random nooks and crannies. And then adventure climbing just provided like a different way to do that. And just like how climbing for a lot of people is their um, their inspiration for travel. You know, you go traveling and it's all sort of centered around climbing, but it's just in the end a means to see the world and travel. That, that was sort of the same way about my adventure climbing with um, with exploring the bush, you know? It's just like... Yeah, there's so much bush to explore, but this can hone it down, and it's my means to to just get out. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what was cool about um, going and doing things like the governor is that there was so much about it that was just unknown to me, even though it had it had all been bolted before. So you know that element of adventure is out there because you know that it's climbable, and then other people have climbed it before. So uh, Trent Williams um, was wrote this really good trip report on Kurank, the old Queensland climbing forums. And here's where I got a lot of the information um, to to go and actually find the thing and then climb all of it because he logged each pitch and said what to, what we could expect. Except for me, even though a lot of those unknowns were taken out because it was I hadn't I'd only done one multi pitch before, it was still like this big mystery and this big adventure. And um, and I guess from there, once once I started getting more comfortable with the like the big multi pitching and sport multi pitches and that that sort of mystery had started to get debunked. You know, I was like, okay, I, I understand this. I feel comfortable doing this big stuff, um, relatively big, Queensland big. Um, then the next thing was just like trying to put up your own route. Yeah. yeah. 
And so you said last week mm. uh, that the first place you went to uh, put up a first ascent was Canyon Gorge, right? Yeah, I think it was. I don't think I put up any routes anywhere else before. And the first area we went there was this area called Big Scary. And it's just, it's the biggest wall there. And it's only about maybe uh, 100 metres high. No, we wrapped down on a single rope. Probably like 70 metres high, actually. But like full 70 metres. And um, and yeah, it was just like a big bush bashy approach up a steep hill. And um, But really, really nice. Like 70 metres of sandstone. We don't really get that in Queensland too much. Like Bria tops out at 40 or something. Um, and like really nice sandstone. It's like, it's been further hardened so it's i think they uh they reckon that it is quartzite but it's not it's similar to some sections of the grampians but but it's nowhere near as consistent as like the grampians or Arapiles. it's sort of like it's like half blueies charles half grampians <laughs> um but but yeah so when i first went there i went out with i met oscar kindbaum and um and I think Tony Barden was out there as well, um, and Joe Lynch. And it was the first time I'd ever put up new routes, and it just amazed me that, you know, you could just rock up to a crack and then just start climbing, you know? And it was, you know, just venturing into the unknown. You don't know what's happening, what's going to come out your way. If it's going to be full of dirt, mud, wasps, or chalk, like maybe someone someone has climbed it before. And it was, it just made me realise that, Every rock is like a piece of rock and you can just give it a go, regardless of whether it already has a number and words attached to it, or if it's just a random crack, you can just go for it. Um, yeah. Tell me about some yeah. of the routes that you found there at Canyon Gorge. Yeah. So the first one we did was, um, oh yeah, I haven't thought about this for ages. This is great. I first one we did was a climb, which I can't remember the name of, a drawer. He called it a drawer. And I can't remember why. Oscar, I think it's some Greek mythology thing. And it's like the slightly overhanging hand crack. We gave it grade 22. And first pitch is this beautiful, like, single pitch style, uh, slightly overhanging hand crack, which sort of tight hands. You've got to wiggle your hands into the right spots and the constrictions. And then afterwards, it's just maybe 60 metres of ugly off-wit thing to the top and just (laughs) meandering adventure. But you've got to top it out. So, So we did that. And then the second route we did, I believe, we called Flight of the Eagles. And that was really the second sort of adventurous ground-up route that I'd ever been a part of putting up. And the first pitch was this meandering thing, sort of like um, Witch's Cauldron at Frog. And you're up this, like, three-sided chimney with gear everywhere. We got to the top of that, and there was this little bomb shelter belay. And then Oscar was just... I just sat down and he was belaying me just sitting with no anchor because you're in this little bomb shelter belay. There's no way I was going to pull him up. Then I got up there and I'd never seen it before. And I was like, what is this maniac doing? <laughs> um, but then it's sort of that, yeah, that was just another step in the progression of realizing that, yo, you just make it make it work. You know, you don't always need a three-piece anchor. Sometimes if you're smart enough with the way you use friction with the rope, um, you can just make it work. Or you can just walk around a tree and belay and use the tree as your top rope. Um and then the next two pitches were like freaking outstanding. The next one was an off width that went for maybe 30 or 40 meters. Um, and it just 
maybe number five off width consistently for most of the way. It went into hands and out to chimney at some sections. And then this one open book corner, which is, yeah, that number five cam size. And that was the first time I'd ever had to walk a cam out of necessity. At Frog, you know, there's always people around that you can just borrow gear. So you you, you never really run out of gear too, too, um, too often. But that one, I'd already used my number five and it was just this maybe five or six meter open book corner and I just had to walk that cam as far as like as far as I dared and then leave it behind and then keep going and then the third pitch is like this little um easy scrambly thing but then standing on top oh that's right halfway out that open book corner I just looked behind out to the the view and there was this eagle that was just soaring up riding this thermal and I was like this is amazing just going out, driving six hours out of town, camping out this little campsite, doing this big walk in, questing up this 70 metre sandstone face of which you know nothing about, except for the fact that you know how to plug gear in, you know sort of how to climb, and this is a cliff to be climbed and to put gear in, so we'll see what happens. And then going up, and then just seeing like that eagle just made me really feel like, bring me as being just part of the environment. And oh, it was just so cool. And then, yeah, topped out, really special moment. And then we did this other thing that we called Journey Binch, which is an, like a, this Frankenstein name of Tony Barden and, Joni, and Joe Lynch together. And yeah, and that was what really got me hooked on, or appreciate the beauty of putting up, yeah, roots, especially Trad, because then we're walking away from it being like, we haven't left anything there. Far from a little bit of chalk and probably a bit of blood. And <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's it was just special. Plus, we didn't have to bring a drill up, so it made our life really easy. Yeah, that is good. And Canyon yeah. Gorge does feel wild, doesn't mm. it? it? Well, I've told you about our embarrassing story of how yeah. we read the guidebook and we tried to get to a crag called Backcountry. Yeah. And in the like the approach section, it says that it takes five minutes to get there. And we're like, sick, mm. a five-minute approach to Adventure yeah. Trad? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And then we realized that, uh, yeah, that was not the case. We yeah. were being – they were having it on. And uh, it took us hours, and we never got there. Yeah. <laughs> we ended up at another crag that I don't even remember the name of. But it is like it is yep. a full-on adventure. It's, Thanks, it's Zach a cool... Trimbath. Honestly, that was yeah. We were so psyched. We were mm. like five minutes, sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you end up climbing there? Yeah, we did. Yeah, nice. yeah but I don't remember where. Mm. But it was beautiful. Mm. That's where we met Kyle Laddie. Oh no! Yeah. Way. Just just randomly. Yeah, or? just randomly. Yeah, right. yeah we were mm. like, no one else is going to be up here, and then it was him and a couple of other guys. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it was so good. Um, yeah, it is a wild spot. It's um about what four to four to five hours north of Brisbane, mm. um, yeah. near near Monto, right? Yeah, yeah, just north of Monto. Yeah, mm. and it's yeah, it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, mm. and if you go, um, anyone listening, there's about halfway up. Or maybe it's like two thirds of the way up. There's this town called Ban Ban Springs, I think. Ban Ban something. Maybe it's Springs. Anyways, all I know is that there's this like petrol station that has a little, you know, restaurant attached to it, like a trucky thing, and they sell a Ban Ban burger, which is the best burger between here and Monto. So absolutely go there if you're driving out at night and get the Ban Ban burger. 
Yeah. Well, that's a good pro tip. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so we good. didn't do that. <laughs> uh, you had to. You didn't go to Kenya then. Yeah, I yeah. guess not. I guess we'll have to go back. Yeah. So that was your very first sort of foray into mm. first ascending and establishing yeah. new routes. Um, yeah. And kind of a notable experience for you after that was going down to Tassie, right? That was, except I still didn't feel super comfortable putting up routes before Tassie. I think we did one other trip at Kenya with a bunch of my high school friends. And that's where, because when I was with Oscar, I sort of felt like I was tagging along with Oscar. Like, you know, I was just the dude under his wing and I didn't feel super comfortable just going by myself. And then me and my high school mates that we started climbing with, we went back to Kenya maybe a year later. And yeah, we just, we found this, nobody should do this because you should go to the campsite. <laughs> But we were young and silly, and so we just found this cave halfway up one of the cliffs, and we lived out of that cave for like five or six days, and we would just venture out and you know find a crack next to the cave, you know, and we wouldn't we didn't really have to walk more than thirty meters from our little campsite, and we could just put up roots, and that was my first taste of of I think like me just going out like with friends who you know sort of my equal like we started out doing it and i was like oh we're at we're at the level where we can just do this um and then just going out every day putting up route after route after route and just making it happen with with plenty of grunting and like you know getting really 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 dirty and and blood sweat and tears yeah um so that i think that was pretty important for me because we ended up putting putting up something like 20 or 30 routes that trip and after that i was like okay I got this. I feel comfortable just rocking up to a cliff and seeing what happens, backing off if need be. Um, and yeah, so I think that was pretty important for me. Yeah. yeah. And then you went down to Tassie a couple of years after that or a year uh, after that? Oh, so the this Tassie trip was end of 2019. Yeah, actually, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. No, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. Before that Tassie trip was Tibro. Where we did cold oh, case. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. right. So you've yeah. done a couple of things with Ryan Siachi, friend yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, friend of everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> friend um, or enemy of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> also known as Zen and the Art of Climbing. Mm. So you've climbed with him a bit and mm. um, you, you thought you'd found a first ascent on Tibro. Mm. Um, but it turns out that maybe it wasn't. Maybe, yeah, we don't know. We still haven't, that mystery hasn't hasn't come forth yet. Um which is why the route's called Cold Case, right? Because yep. it's an unsolved mystery. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we headed up. So, with, with I'd only done single pitch um, first ascents. And then with Ryan, he'd scoped out a bit of wall on... Oh, what wall? Desperation? No, not Desperation Wall. Carburundum Wall, I think, at um, on Tibro, where, the, where there weren't any routes. And so um, he was hankering for us to get down there and give it a go. And yeah, so we quested up there one day. Um, we did bring a drill and bolts, but we didn't end up using them at all because we just realised that there was there was enough gear on the route, and some sections that could have a bolt were easy enough easy enough that you just continue. That's sort of the style of Tibro, um, anyway. Is that well, Tibro trad adventure sort of stuff? Is that if it's easy slab, you just sort of continue until you can find some gear. Um, yeah, and. But in the first pitch, I think that we found, we didn't find any fixed gear, but we found a sling or cordelette around this tree. And that was the first sort of hint that somebody had um, had been there before. And so, yeah, we blade off that, that tree shrub thing 
and we continued up and we didn't find anything else until about 30 meters past that, maybe 20 meters past that, that tree. And it was this, oh yeah, I think it was a piton or something that we found up there. I can't Yeah, I vaguely remember yeah. in Ryan's post, he said yeah. it was a piton. Yeah. 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 Can't remember exactly where, but yeah. So, so we think somebody had been there, but for the rest of the route, there was absolutely nothing and enough tross uh, that it sort of suggested that nobody had been up there. Mm-hmm. And also the, the, the section of cliff above was much harder than was mm-hmm. below, like just above where we found where the tree and I think the piton was, were like these sort of imposing overhangs. And then, yeah, just some harder climbing that would suggest that somebody in the 60s or 70s would have put some fixed gear there. If, they're, if the person had put fixed gear on the easy ground below, they likely would have put it up higher. But, you know, we just don't know. Apparently, talking to some people, we heard that Ted Case had, and numerous others had gone up in the area and tried new routes and then often just bailed after a pitch or so. And so the routes that we see now that are from the 60s and 70s are the ones that they were able to push all the way to the top. But there are numerous forays into new routes that just hadn't eventuated. Right, so that's yeah. what this one might have been. Potentially, yeah. Or they went to the top and we've just claimed an old first ascent. But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we called it cold case because just because the length of it being potentially an old route that hadn't been finished and we finished it off and also Ted Case's last name. Yeah, so, yeah. I love that. That's yeah. cool. That was, that's Ryan's lyrical genius there. Yeah, yeah. he is. He's quite the wordsmith. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you went down to Tassie with Ryan mm. with the intention of climbing a first ascent that didn't actually end up working out is that right yeah that didn't work out at all um we wanted to go to precipitous bluff which is a a peak in the southwest of uh tassie and if have you seen like a map you've seen tassie before mm-hmm. like maps i have tassie? seen tassie before yeah, yeah. <laughs> it exists yeah, yeah it does we admitted off our maps it's part of australia <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and so, yeah, the, the entire western side of Tassie, apart from a little bit at the top, is just bush, really. Like, there's some roads that go through it, and I think there's a Queenstown down there that's just like a... It's, it shares the name... It, I think it is Queenstown, but it's like nothing like the New Zealand Queenstown. It's just like this abandoned, yucky-looking mining town. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah. It, it, it might be Queenstown or another Kiwi name in it, but yeah. Anyways, no offence to anybody that lives there. Um, but I swear, when we went there, we didn't see anything. All the shops were boarded up. And there may as well have been like tumbleweed going through the town. <laughs> it was just, but um, but yeah. So most of the west is all covered in um bush, and the southwest is this big national park, and it's like one of the greatest expanses of like forested wilderness, um, in Australia, and apart from I think the Daintree. But anyways, it's just beautiful. But the weather's quite inclement there. Um, the mountains are quite big. That's where you've got Federation Peak and Frenchman's Cap, uh, except. It's it's very, very wet most of the year because a lot of the weather comes in off the west and it just doesn't stop. And or pretty much all year it doesn't stop. And I think it's like every five days. Oh, you might get like five-day windows, but then, you know, that'll pass and the next cold front will come in and it's like constantly getting saturated and maybe drying a little bit if there's a weird window, except it's mostly wet. So we went down there to to try and climb it in, I think it was in December. And it ended up just being 
are far too wet. We were still down there and we got everything packed up and ready and we talked to some of the locals and the locals just laughed and said, have you looked at the forecast? And I'm like, yeah, we, we did. It looks like there's a bit of a window. And they're like, yeah, that's the forecast. You're looking at the forecast for the coastal town, which is maybe 20Ks or 30Ks as the crow flies. But on the mountain itself, it's, there's going to be 30 centimetres of snow dumped on it. Ha ha ha, silly Queenslanders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, every time I go down, I get shown up by these Taswegians. Um, yeah, and so that ended up not happening. And so we did our... Which is unfortunate because Precipitous Bluff, just to sort of pump some energy into it, looks incredible. There's maybe... 500 meters of cliff line up to 320 meters or 350 high and it's all columnar so it just cracks for days apart from the first 40 or 50 meters it looks like it's weirdly fused like a different uh, rock type so it looks hard difficult to breach that section especially without bolts because yeah just it's not a good idea to bolt there there's not a single bolt on the face so you don't don't really want to be the first to to break that ethos and so yeah but the rest of it looks bloody amazing um, it is guarded by a four-day walk-in, which you can either do over these like high rolling hills and plateaus, um, or you can go via the South Coast track, which looks like mega fun. Um, involves a section where you've got to, I think, paddle across a stream on a boat. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, that didn't happen. So we reverted to our backup plan, which was to head out to Cape Pillar in the southeast and Cape Pillar was what well, is this 300 meter sea cliff um, that sort of resolves, revolves around this chasm. And on the eastern side of the chasm, there's like 300 meters of like straight cliff ocean to, um, to summit. And then on the western side, it's a little bit more broken, but there's still heaps of adventure to be had. And there's something like four routes established on that cliff so there's so much more to go and so yeah we, we headed out there yeah yeah what was it like um heading down obviously ryan very experienced mm. grouchy veteran of uh <laughs> climbing and first ascents and adventurous <laughs> yeah. things yeah um what was it like doing you know heading down to do your first ascent outside of queensland yeah first was... first ascent first yeah, <laughs> yeah. um yeah, it was. It's always comforting climbing with Ryan, and with those sort of adventures, there's nobody else I'd rather do it with, because with with Ryan, we're just we're on the same wavelength. So, and we we get along really well. Like like I say all the time, he feels like an older brother to me, and it doesn't whether it's like jokes or having serious chats. I feel like we're able to understand what we're both thinking. Um, without having to verbalize everything there's just sort of there's the synergy there that is has just been natural from the start one thing you Mm. said to me before that i Mm. thought was really interesting is that Mm. you and ryan kind of complement each other because you're opposites yeah you're super gung-ho and he's quite conservative Mm. um just tell me a little more about that like when did you do you think that's important in a first ascent partner um i think yeah, well, it's it's important for us. I think for different people, you know, there's like many different flavors that go well together, and I think for for other people, it might different combinations might work well. But for me, I think it's really important to have somebody like Ryan there because, yeah, I I'm gun ho in a sense that I'm not the sort of gun ho that will 
just you know place a crappy piece of gear and be like yeah she'll be right mate and then just continue up hard terrain where i might fall um in that sort of environment i'm i'm really really scared um and i just start quivering but i am potentially yeah quite overconfident when my head gets into something and i'm i really want to do something and i can get tunnel visioned into just wanting to get to the top like i don't really like failure and for a while like up until that trip i hadn't really experienced much like failure in climbing sort of the stuff i've tried to do i've been able to do and i hadn't had to back off really and so i think i just got sort of used to the feeling of like oh if i set set my mind to something i can do it instead of yeah taking a step back and being like oh this could get serious it is better to just to back off and that's something that i've gotten yeah i've i've learnt with climbing with ryan is that ryan's not afraid because he's got all the mountain experience where there are powers out of your control in the weather and the snow conditions and where you've just got to call quits because the odds aren't in your favor and that's okay you're not even walking away with your towel between your legs you're walking away just like oh we made it out and we made the right decision because we came up here to make the right decisions and hopefully make it to the top not to make it to the top at all costs and whereas i i think partially because i didn't have that backing um you know i'm just in queensland where the the that sort of external risk that's outside of your control is is quite minimal um because we've got good weather and and like the crags we have aren't like super super sketchy with heaps of bad rock um yeah i hadn't had to really exercise that part of my brain and get used to backing off yeah and um so so that's helped in a couple instances with ryan just being able to back off and then going out to cape pillar was the first time where we had sort of um came to like an impasse in a way at one point where i just wanted to go for it and the weather because we we hiked out there so a bit of backstory just to set the scene for people is we we drove out to the car park and we hiked out took maybe half a day to get out to this campsite with like 30 kilos of gear or something which was okay for ryan but i was struggling and and then that same day we hiked out to the top of the chasm and we left some gear out there we put up this little 20 meter off withy thing which is pretty pretty fun good to get a bit of a taste of the rock and then we came back to the campsite packed had lunch and, or had dinner and stuff packed for the next day headed back out there except the weather looked pretty poor the, there was no rain on the radar or minimal except it was really really windy because it's a sea cliff right so it's mm. if it's basically the first stop after antarctica isn't it exactly yeah. yeah yeah so the wind would just slam into that rock yeah yeah and my experience of it is only those three days but it's very very windy and um yeah like you said there's there's nothing stopping the wind from antarctica so we can just pick up um and there's actually there's a video of cedar wright and james pearson oh, and and it's really really solid female climber whose name escapes me but yeah they went out there and they were throwing their ropes off and their ropes went up oh, <laughs> like that's how windy it was um for us it didn't get that bad but the the f- potential hazard was that it's you know it's a it's a virgin cliff there's it's a sea cliff there's, we know there's a lot of loose rock as evidenced by that video that was, they threw off a lot of choss and um so yeah the worry was that the wind could knock off choss above us um and then knock it onto us 
So yeah, but my thinking was, even though the forecast is, says it's bad wind, we should go out there anyway and just see. We don't know until we're there. We're just looking at you know words on a, on our phones right now. Um, until we know feel the wind on our cheeks, we don't know that if it's actually there. And and so Ryan agreed to that, and then except there was just a little bit of I don't know. Ryan was definitely on the side of okay, I want to. Yeah, we should play it safe and maybe it's better to just wait, wait the day until we, we know there's good weather because the day after was good weather. Um, but then I was on the side of like, oh, we're here to do this thing. Let's just do the thing and like give it a go. And and so we were able to come to a compromise when we where we were like, okay, we're just going to abseil in. Well, we're going to walk out there, check the weather, um, even though it's a bit of a walk and a bit of an effort. Check the weather. If it's okay, we'll abseil in and just clean clean off the route and just sort of suss the line out and do what we do whatever we think is safe in the conditions um and then we'll return the next day to climb and i'm curious before you go on about how mm. you selected that particular line mm. oh yeah so the the chasms it will the cliff the way the cliff is sort of um how it is is really handy in that like i said it's a deep cleft sort of in the in the cliff line um and the on that cleft on both sides is cliff right and then there's on both sides you can just walk to the to the outward edges of that mm-hmm. so you can see both sides of the cliff just by walking to the tops of both sides of the of that cleft so it's you can see pretty much all the cliff apart from the bottom 100 meters to the water from from the top of the cliff without using a drone so so it's really it was very easy so we just walked out to the top of the eastern side we looked down like oh those cracks look cool and then we started going for it and ryan was actually up there whilst i was wrapping down and he was directing me to the line um when i was there just so i didn't get sort of lost and end up in a different crack system that didn't end up where we wanted to be Mm -hmm. so yeah so that was really fortunate that Yeah. yeah and what was it like when you were cleaning it was it loose um yeah it was pretty loose and you couldn't remove all of it the top was pretty good, um, I'm guessing, because it doesn't have much like moisture and like salts coming off the water. But the further down you get, the chossier it gets. And we didn't go all the way to the water's edge. We went about halfway down. So I think we ended up doing like 120 meters of climbing or something. And we went about halfway down, about 20 or 30 meters above this this ledge. Um, which is where you start a lot of the routes on the right-hand side of the chasm. Yeah, so it's like this big halfway ledge where you can start where you can start those routes. And for our route to reach that, we'll need to do another twenty or thirty meters below this. But but even down there, the the rock was getting like worse and worse the further down you go. And when if you're at a ledge, there's big blocks on the ledges. Sometimes in the crack, there'll be like huge flakes sort of wedged in the crack, and it seems like. Some of the cracks just have like layers of flakes inside that were maybe just one and they've just cracked off over the years or it's flaked out inside the crack. And so you get inside some of them and sometimes you can remove the flakes if, if you dare, if you can get away from your belayer and the rope. And then sometimes there's just a bit of like chossy flakiness inside the crack and you just got to jam against the flake. <laughs> Feel um, it disintegrating under your hand yeah. as you're jamming. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and down lower there was this weird... It wasn't really... It was sort of flaky, but it wasn't quite a flake. But the sides of the crack 
were sort of like these um, these hollow plates in a way, and there was nothing you could do apart from just jam in it. And exactly like you said, it just like sometimes the those little those plates will just go they'll creep. Except <laughs> you're in and you're just pushing them into the walls, you know. So the truss when you put pressure on it becomes solid because it's yeah it's jamming into the side. <laughs> just like how you see people use like those wooden blocks next to cans to like make a number four can fit in number five crack. It's just sort of like what your hands did against the, the you're, truss. You're unchossing the truss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But not good for gear, though. But yeah, I guess okay not. For hands, for yeah. hands, but, so yeah. what was that like, placing gear? Um, yeah, it was... It, it all went... Like, this had, climbing it all went pretty much without a hitch. And so placing gear, you just climb past the truss and you'd find a nice spot, or you remove some truss and you'd find, like, a nice solid spot. But, um, but yeah, all of that went without a hitch, really. Like, the, the biggest sort of learning for the, that period was going back to what I said before was um how like I I just wanted to go and go for it and then Ryan was like no no we should we should play it safe and which made us like think and take our time all the way through it um and it was just sort of negotiating that the different like values and our different approaches so you basically um, got down there cleaned it and yeah. then went you're ready to go yeah well I wasn't expecting to climb it yeah though that that time because the agreement was we're just going to go down clean it and then, then we're going to just jug out. We'll return the next day. Because we wrapped in and we borrowed some ropes off a of mate in Hobart. And we just wrapped in, left the fixed lines in so we could jug, jug back out. And then the idea was to climb it the next day. But um, anyways, I get down to the bottom of the line after having cleaned off the pitches. And then Ryan wraps down after me and he's got all the gear with him. Like he's he's got all our shoes and chalk and all the trad gear from up above. And he's like, hey, bud. Let's climb. <laughs> and I was just so happy. Yeah. It was, except he forgot the ropes. The ropes were oh. still at the top. So we had to juggle the way back up, get the ropes and come back down. Well, yeah. thank God you had fixed lines in. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Which is a great yeah. idea for something like that too, right? In case you need to escape without exactly. having to climb out. Yeah. Yeah. Escape is up really. You could, you could wrap down, but it would be such an epic getting back. The easiest way would be to swim across the chasm and then... <laughs> then walk out all that other way but I wouldn't even we wouldn't even know the way we, we could figure it out but it'd be a bit of an epic plus yeah. I don't think Ryan swims in the ocean oh really Ryan's not an ocean guy okay <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that <laughs> yeah I have this theory this mm. is a total digression mm. but I have a theory um mm. about the fact that if you're good in the mountains, you're bad in the ocean. Right. The better you are in the mountains, the worse you are in the ocean. Okay, right. So people out there, let me know your thoughts on that theory. <laughs> I just, every mountaineer I know mm. hates the ocean. Yeah, right. Hates the beach. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So they try to escape it. Yeah, yeah. it's a theory that I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'll cool. keep just you posted. Test that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'm curious about mm. that actually blew my mind because I didn't know yeah. this about you okay. is when you said before mm. that you get really scared yeah. sometimes when yeah. you're doing adventure trad yeah. because you've done a lot of you know scary trad at frog and um right. you know you do a lot of first ascents mm. um and mm. I guess I just assumed that you were fearless right <laughs> no, I'm so scared um often and I think as when I started climbing with like Kyle and Dan, um, I think they were surprised as well at how long I take to climb some things and how scared I get. And it's definitely getting 
a bit worse now in the past year or so that I've been climbing less. Um, but, but yeah, the whole way through really, I've just been scared of like big falls and big runouts on terrain that I think I might fall. If it's, I've gotten, because of a lot of the adventure climbing that I've done, I've gotten quite comfortable in terrain where I know I'm not going to fall. You know, I, I could have a small piece, like just a marginal headspace piece, 20 meters below. But if I'm on terrain where, you know, I'm, there's no way I'm going to fall, uh, I feel okay. And that's mostly a slabby terrain. When you're on your feet, if you can stand there forever, really, and you're not going to pump out, your forearms are just getting, getting better and better. You've just got to collect the mind and continue on. But I can't climb through that stuff really quickly. I've still got to take my time. So I'll, like on cold case, for example, I'm pretty sure that second pitch would have taken me something like four or five hours. And it's just, whereas somebody might see, oh, Alex did this 45, well, 40 meter, you know, scary adventure pitch. Like he's fearless. But that whole time was me being like, can you swear on this podcast? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll use like baby swear words. <laughs> like, but yeah, like the whole time I was like, crap, 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 crap. And I'm scared. I'm going to retreat and like down climb. This is my classic move. Like I climb up, I figure out one move. I'm like, okay, now back down. And I go back to my safe little nest, like at the last piece or like on the ledge or something. And then I'll build up the, you know, the confidence to go up and then try one more move. I'll be like, oh shit, shit, shit. And then I'll go back down, you know? And it's like a very slow process of me just sussing things out to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm getting pretty pumped. I could fall, come back down, rest. And then, sort of keep going that self yo-yo yeah and, um, that's i that's yeah. a tried and tested method for me as well i did <laughs> yeah. that on uh cornerstone rib in the warren bungles yeah except that that's like a 10 right <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh my god i'm gonna die yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's it and it's it's the way it works hey but um but when it comes to so with that stuff i'm, I'm absolutely fine and if i'm like in an off width and i'm like oh this is a solid off width there's no way i'm gonna fall out then I feel okay as well running it out or, or if I'm like really easy, yeah, really easy climbing. It's just relative to anyone, you know, like any, most climbers could do caves route cause it's grade four and they'll feel fine. Um, but then if they were going to do like a grade eight on Tibro, then they feel like they need a couple pieces and it's just the same thing. Um, but, but yeah, when it comes to actually taking a fall, I get petrified and I just, I could even get like, depending on where my headspace at, is at, I could just be like a meter or a meter and a half above a really good piece of gear or even a bolt sometimes. And it'll just like, you know, the the fear of God will just grip me, you know? And that's something that I'm like still working on, working on. Have you ever taken any big falls? Yeah, like... Oh, you would have on brown corduroy trousers. Yeah, like trousers have taken some big falls. On Debrilla out there, I've taken some big falls. And it's just, you know, self-inflicted big falls that like trying to work the headspace. Um, yeah, and and that is comforting knowing that. Like I was out at Frog uh, l- last year with Kyle and we did a climb called Bob Canoe. And I hadn't been climbing for the last couple months. I was just, my mom was preoccupied with uni. And I was feeling quite scared and I was trying to flash it. And there was this one spot at the top where you just have to run it out, like maybe maybe four metres and you get to this sort of weird stance where you're smearing on this blank corner and your your right hand's like you've got your left foot on like this pretty good hold, I think. Except your right hand's just smearing on this blank corner. And then you've just got to get in this weird position and stack these, I think they're number two RPs, and stack three or four of these RPs in this little hole. 
and it's just a, it's a very thin crack, right? And none of it will will uh, accept those number two IPs in that section, apart from one little section where there's just this been this open divot. And I was just there, and I was peeking, you know, trying to feel these RPs in. But to get up to that point, I was it was every move felt uncomfortable for me, and I was doing my old classic, go up and down, up and down, up and down, and I was getting really scared. And then Carl just said, look to your left and remember that you've done the trousers, you know? And then I literally just looked around the corner because it's the next climb over. And it's nice having something like that that you can remember back to and then draw strength from a time where you had more strength. And oh, he's a wise man, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Carl's, yeah. Carl's so insightful. Um, and, and yeah, and then after after that, it's like, oh, you know, I, I can do this. I'm... Like I've gotten to that headspace before. I can find it again, and so. But you know, it just it it comes and goes, right? And did you flash yeah. it? He ends up doing it, which hey, I was so too. Yeah, well done. So, how yeah. does that kind of struggle with your headspace? I think mm. you know, for me and probably a lot of people, mm. think that a lot of first ascensionists are like this badass, like no right. fear mm. kind of you know, um, just yeah, gung ho guys and girls mm. who. Mm. Um, you know, just don't, that doesn't even occur to you. Or if it does, it's like, oh, well, if I die, I die, you know, that sort of person, but (laughs) that evidently is not the case. So how does that fear play into uh, like your ability to Mm. do first ascents and like your decision-making while you're climbing? Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty similar really. Like it's, it's, it's a similar game just with a couple more factors, right? Like if, if you're just trying to, to climb a root at frog or or climb something on bolts and you're dealing with that fear of falling then there's a couple less factors that you've that you've got to mitigate to de- decrease the risk because it's always just a fear of there's like the classic thing that everyone says and I think I first heard it from Hales of Finlay is um, it's actual risk versus perceived risk and you know the fear that I have falling on a bolt and when I'm a meter above the bolt is mostly perceived risk because you're just like, oh, what if the rope breaks or the bolt just explodes, you know? And like, that's not going to happen. And you, what's going to happen is you take a two meter fall or a three meter fall and you're absolutely fine. And then, okay, what if you're four meters above the bolt? What's the, it's still mostly perceived risk, but there's a little bit more actual risk and that it's, it's a bigger fall. You could, could have a hard catch or collect a ledge or flip upside down, but still it's mostly perceived. If there's enough air below you, you can take a, you know, 20 meter whipper and you'll, you'll be fine. It's just for some reason in your brain, the, the perceived risk feels way more, way greater. And then when you transpose that to trad climbing, um, where there's a couple more factors and that you're not relying on this bolt, um, you, you have to place your gear, right. Then there's, you know, there's a little couple more factors that may increase the perceived risk for you. But realistically, if you place a good piece of gear, it's going to hold, and so at that point, it's the same with the bolt. So you're back to where you started with sport climbing. And then when you go to... Um, or then, sorry, still on that note with, with trad climbing, the other thing I really I struggle with is just not knowing what's above. If I know that there's a piece of gear in four meters, you're like, okay, I just have to climb through this little bit of a run out. I'm okay, and I can put that gear in. But the fear of not knowing what that next piece is is really, really... Um, like daunting at times because you're like oh what if I get there and there's no piece there and then like I'm just like screwed and then I've got to take this big fall but even then it's like 
the actual risk is you just take a bigger fall and you're okay. Um, and then when you go into like doing ground up, like trad first ascents, it's just a couple more factors in that you're just worried about these potential future things like, oh, there could be loose rock up there. Um, or I, I don't know what's up there, what gear is there. There's, there's no words on a piece of paper for me to learn everything I can about this route. But in the end, you just don't know until you actually go and you give it a go. And if you're going on site, you don't know if that holds a jug or a crimp until you hold the hold. So just get up there and try to hold the hold. Um, and yeah, it's that's sort of all it is. It's the same game, but just with a couple more factors to to deal with. Yeah. So, so all mm. of these first ascents, mm. you know, kind of culminated in this project that you're currently working on, right? Um, or you know, and a work in progress, yeah. Um, on Mount Warning mm. or Wollumbin in northern yeah. New South Wales, yeah, which is home to uh, another route we've talked about on this podcast before, Lost Boys. Mm. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a huge undertaking to climb something on Mount Warning, right? Yeah, huge for us, at least. I think if you talk to somebody who's like a grizzled alpinist or they used to go on a Baffin <laughs> Island or something, then they'd be like, ah, walk in the park. But um, but yeah, for us, it's, it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what made you decide to um, find a new route out there? Mm. Um, so the Lost Boys is the first route we found out about because the classic picture that used to be in a Dugan Dan pub um, Dugan Hotel, in, which is the the pub right that all the frog climbers go to yeah. after they finish a day at Frog. Which, which if you haven't been there, is incredible because it's quite mm. an ode to the history of climbing in the area. It's mm. amazing. I mean, there's not many establishments in southeast Queensland that mm. kind of have that, you know, lean into that climbing history in the mm. area. It's really cool. Yeah, they they used to have that picture of um, Malcolm Matheson and Tim Ball on the Lost Boys. And then they, they have the other picture that, like, tells the history of Frog and there's, like, pics, um, yeah, little images of like, Rick White and different people climbing. It's cool. Um, yeah, and so that was the f- first time I'd found about uh, Mount Warning and through seeing that picture of, of HB and Tim Ball and Lost Boys. And you do a bit of research and there wasn't too much information online. There's not much approach information and they just detailed a couple of routes that are there. And, of course, nobody I knew had been out there. And so it was in the back of my mind for ages as like this goal. I want to go out to Mount Warning and do the Lost Boys one day. And then I ended up going out there in 2018, I believe, with uh, Joshua G, Josh Groff. And Phil took us out and showed us the way in. We Phil Box. Phil Box, yeah. Okay, this is where the explainers start. Phil Box has put up a lot of first ascents around southeast Queensland. Troposphere on Tibrugagan is a popular one you might know, but if you've ever read, like, any guidebook, you'll find his name in there. I think we stayed out there for three days, um, three or four days, and climbed one one route and then half of another route, and that was sort of the, my first experience of the face, and it's just bloody, it's insanity. It's such a beautiful wall and such a beautiful little part of the world there. I, yeah, through, sometimes I just think back to, being in the forest there because the climbing is like fun and, and the wall's big but when I think back to it I just think about like sleeping in a hammock in the middle of the jungle with, with a couple mates and just banter yeah yeah. 
because it is i mean it's thick bush that mm. it's it's rainforest and you walk in for what like five hours to get into the base of the all of the climbing routes there yeah it depends on how well made the track is that year if the track's like well cut and you're not getting caught up by any way a while then you can get in there in like three hours um or three and a half hours with a decent pack on and without a pack on you could probably get out there in like two hours but the first time we went out there we the track wasn't first time we went out there last year i should say dan and i um the track wasn't um wasn't made in there that year or for for a couple years and it was yeah it took us maybe six hours with 30 kilogram packs to get in the six and that's just you know the difference can is massive if you're stumbling around with a pack on like wet logs and getting caught up and wait a while it can take like six or seven hours yeah so the first time you went out there was to climb some routes that already exist yeah and then when you went out there with dan cox Mm. last year another Mm. friend of this podcast Mm. um was that to sort of scope potentially a new route yeah yeah i I don't actually know where that idea came from but i'd always like the idea of putting up a new route on on our, you know the Queensland's biggest walls, and so the east face of Barney is another one where it would be awesome too, and and then the east face of Maroon, if there's stuff that can go there as well. But but then Warning is just like it's the biggest and baddest around, you know. So you sort of just want to go for it, and yes, yeah, so that was the idea last year after going out there with Josh, and I was like, we've we've got to do this. There's so much wall. Plus, the main section of the wall where the Lost Boys is, there's only Lost Boys. And that's like the biggest and like the coolest section of wall there. All the other routes, even though they, they're still great and, and um, yeah, they, they climb well and they're still long, they're off to the sides where it's a lot shorter. So, so yeah. So, yeah, Dan and I went out there to scope out something. We used some drone footage as well to try to eye up some lines. And, is that yeah. the drone footage of Duncan and Hank? Yeah, use that. Yeah. Yeah, and some other stuff from Josh. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's cool. But the tricky thing with that face is that there's not a lot of cracks, really. There's a crack might open up for 10 metres at most, and then it'll, it'll fuse off and it'll, you'll just go back to slab. And the cracks are mostly um, behind these big flakes as well. So, yeah, <laughs> you know what that means. Yeah, and you yeah. want to establish a trad route up there, right? That would be cool, but like very improbable, I think. Yeah. yeah, it could be possible, but it would take like, yeah, next level balls, I think, <laughs> to do it. <laughs> yeah, like big runouts to do it free. Maybe you could get away with some like really inventive aid climbing to not put bolts in, mm-hmm. but every route there has has bolts in it so far. It would be awesome for a pure trad line to go. But yeah, it's improbable, I think. So you went out there basically prepared to put bolts in. You took a drill and Mm. had huge packs and you showed me an adorable pic of Dan, you know, fast asleep against a tree with his big haul bag on. (laughs) So it was a huge commitment to get out there. Yeah, big commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And and, um, tell me about the experience of trying to Mm. find your way up this new line yeah it was it was pretty it was i think that that and the the route in tassie are the coolest things i've been a part of climbing um by far just the sort of multifaceted approach of having to combine like hiking skills and just like general low-key survival skills survival is probably an overstatement but um 
and and climbing is just like invigorating um and with with warning it was a little bit more tactical so we had to you know we had to re reform the track in and then figure out exactly how much food we wanted to bring and what what gear we needed to do this thing because it was climbing it would be like an an uh, a combination of free climbing and um and bolting on leads free climbing and then aid climbing and bolting whilst aid climbing plus um plus because it's a 500 meter face well 500 meter climb potentially or 400 450 meter face um you've yeah to do that in a single push was is a big ask and like it took us and we're not experienced at this sort of stuff but it took us what four four days no three days to get up 180 meters and that's not even half of the half of the wall and it's like you look at the topo of what we did compared to the rest of the wall and it's just depressing (laughs) (laughs) and yeah but so which which means because you can't do it in one day you've got to use ropes so if you're if you're planning on doing it over two days if it's a small wall you could just bring fixed ropes and then yeah haul them up to your high point fix them off wrap down jug back up the ropes and continue but because it's so big and we think that and we're not fast enough for that star we thought we'd have to sleep up on the wall so it also took us like planning or took us bringing portal edges in because the plan was to go reach our high point wrap down to the ground on fixed ropes and then jug back up continue on wrap down and we get to the point where we run out of fixed ropes where, where we're like jugging 200 meters of static a day which which is an ideal and then we make a portal edge camp up there and then pull up all our um, our ropes commit to the wall and then continue up mm. but we didn't make it that far unfortunately I'm going to jump in here again. Go and watch The Dawn Wall if you want to see a really good depiction of the process that Alex is describing here of being on a large wall and setting fixed lines of static rope and moving up and down those ropes to access different parts of the wall. He's talking about jugging here, which is using ascenders, handles with a one-way pulley system that slide up the rope and then lock off so that you can pull up on them and move up the rope fairly easily, although it's still pretty hard yakka, which is why he's saying that doing this for 200 metres is not ideal. Yeah. The, the first day, we were on an absolute high because we'd all hiked out there. Ryan and um, Max Wesley helped us hike out all the gear. We had a great first night with an awesome feed. Dan was the was the camp chef, and he was cooking some amazing um, Ainsley Harriet couscous meals, and Whoa. it was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we make it down to the base of the wall. We give Dan the first pitch because he put so much effort into um into the whole preparation of everything, and he he killed it absolutely. And the first three pitches. Dan did the first, I did the second, Carl did the third. It was all climbed, um, like, free, ground up, and, um, yeah, putting in a couple bolts on lead, but not that many. It was There was enough gear, like, trad gear, to go around, and you, you could run out the easy sections okay. Um, yeah, and we were flying, so we were super happy. And then the next two days were just slow, slow going. Um, it may have even been three at... Yeah, it's blurred in my memory a little bit now. But yeah, we pretty much after the first 100 metres, you get into these overhangs. And I say overhangs, but it's maybe pitched back 20 degrees or 15 degrees. But that goes on for another 45 to 60 metres. And it's this big, big wall. Maybe 
80 meters wide of that steepness. And if it was, you know, an hour's walk away from the car park and at ground level, it would be, you know, one of the most popular sport crags around for hard, hard sport climbing. But it's perched up there halfway or a third of the way up this big wall, which is so rad. But it was just slow going. It meant that we couldn't climb it free. And so, whereas on the first pitches, you could just do a couple foot movements in, you know, 15 seconds and you've made two meters progress. There, you'd have to do multiple hook moves or you'd have to do little aid bolts or put in like, um, like, pe- like peckers or just do, like, do little fiddly bits of aid. A pecker or a big piton looks a bit like a bird beak with a V-shaped downward hook designed to be gently inserted or hammered into small cracks to protect blank walls, mostly while aid climbing. You might be looking at like a metre's progress for every minute, you know? And so it just took a lot longer. And when you, there wasn't a lot of trad gear either. So, which meant if we wanted to free the pitch, because the goal was to put up a potentially freeable line, then it'd have to be bolted accordingly as well. The Lost Boys, the way Tim ball bolted it was he's wrapped down from the top and he's had, I think he's had two 50 meter ropes or something. So every 50 meters he's put in an anchor and he did that up the top section, which is not too overhanging. It's mostly slab and face. And then he's gone to these big overhangs and he's looked down below, I'm guessing, and was like, ah, oh, we can't climb that. Because keeping in mind that the time, like, you know, the day, the time of the day was like, I think it was like the 80s or maybe late mm-hmm. 70s. I'm not sure. Maybe it was late 80s. But yeah, and then, so he elected to traverse along the top of the overhangs to right. the left. And they ended up bolting that huge three-pitch traverse that, Duncan and Hank probably talked about, which I think they call it the Traverse of Total Terror. <laughs> and yeah, so he bolted that, and um, then they continue down, well, the Lost Boys continues down the left hand side of those overhangs for another 200, 250 meters to the ground, mm-hmm. whereas it vert and slab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but like, which is awesome, and it means that you get a 590 meter route, but we were thinking it could be pretty cool to have a directissima route going straight up through the guts. And, um, yeah, straight to the top, dissecting the Lost Boys in two. And what we had one idea to put up one route on the left-hand side of the face, further left of the Lost Boys, and another, or, or another one further right of the Lost Boys. But what enticed us to the middle was some uh, drone footage. Made it look like there was a roof crack going straight through the overhangs. Because there's, there's this one section where it goes, like, completely horizontal roof. And there's this crack leading up to it. And then there's a crack above it. And so one would surmise that through the overhangs would also be a crack. And we were getting really psyched on climbing roof cracks at the time as well. Kyle helped me make a roof crack onto my house. And <laughs> we're training on that a lot. And anyways, we get there and it was completely seamed out, unfortunately. It was like complete. You need the smallest of, of, um, of ropes to actually get anything in the crack. So yeah, that was a no-go. But luckily there were holds that ran up the left-hand side. So we could continue making a potentially freeable line up there. Yeah. What's a RURP? It stands for Realized Ultimate Reality Piton. It's a thin blade of metal that's hammered into micro cracks. You wouldn't want to fall on one. So we've talked about the first three pitches. Um, so the first three pitches, the fourth pitch is going through the steepness. And the end of that pitch is this beautiful hanging flake um, which leads you to this little ledge that's maybe 30 centimetres wide 
and that's where we put the belay there. And then Dan embarked on the next pitch. So the the steepness is sort of bowed out. Now it's vertical face, which slabs out and then leads you towards the traverse of halfway through the Lost Boys traverse. And so that was Dan's pitch. And so it's completely blank, beautiful rock there, like really good quality rock, but completely blank. So Dan starts aiding up that. And he's just, you know, he hasn't done any aid climbing before. And he'd only really just learned how to bolt, you know, a month before and then in the first pitch. And anyways, he, he was going up it and it's, it's slow going as it is. And we, he's going up and he's going out of sight. You can't see him anymore. And he's probably been on this pitch for like four or five hours. Um, I mean, Carla just freezing at this belay, hoping he'd hurry up. Because that's the other thing about Mount Warning. You have to climb it in the depths of winter, essentially, because it's dark rock. And if you climb it in summer, you'll yeah, fry. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's usually so hot. But that we lucked out. And Duncan said we got so lucky that week because we had no, not a hint of rain the whole time and cold. Like in the middle of the day in full sun, we were so cold, which is like something you don't really experience often in, in Queensland. And well, it's New South Wales. Yeah, we, yeah. we should note that <laughs> we're, on, we're referring to this as Southeast Queensland, <laughs> but Mount Warning it. is technically in, yeah. in northern New South Wales. Whoops. But you know, we, we love to claim things that are good, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it's right on the border. Yeah. New South Wales just has so much good stuff already. Yeah, so. <laughs> they've got the blueies. We can yeah. have Mount Warning. <laughs> and and yeah, and anyways, he goes out of sight. And the thing with with um, Dan with th- throughout the whole warning like saga, we realised that. He's so, you've met him, he's so expressive and he wears his heart on his sleeve, you know? And he, like whenever he, you know, trips over or something, he will just like scream, you know, <laughs> scream out and say an expletive and yeah, he'll, yeah, he really expresses himself. And at first, at the start of the trip, whenever he tripped over on, on the hiking, cause you're constantly tripping over, me and Kyle, he'd, he'd, you know, cry out to me and Kyle be like, oh, how are you going? Are you, you okay? So he thought he's just broken his ankle or something. And then later on, that at first we we're like, shit, he's broken his leg. And then he's absolutely fine. Like he's just been caught by us and wait a while. And then later on, we're like, oh, he stubbed his toe. And he's like, oh no, it's okay. He's just like <laughs> got a scratch or something. And he's completely fine. He's just, he's I'm a really tough guy. Um, so much determination, but he's just very expressive. Hmm. And then... Except on that route, so we we sort of became numb to to grip to dance. You were desensitized, sort of yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, this doesn't mean anything. Just like how a parent, you know, they'll hear their kids cry or scream out, and then everyone else will be like, that kid just died. Except the parents, like, they know instantly they're yeah. okay. And then Dan on that pitch just lets out this scream, and we can't see him at this point, and we're like, just like a parent that knows their child, like <laughs> we know that's a proper scream. <laughs> And then we see him like hurtling into view, like he comes into the skyline and he's sitting on it. He's like, holy fuck, I just whipped on a sky hook. <laughs> and what had happened is that he'd, I think he'd done two sky hook moves in a row. So he'd run out of bolts and then he'd just been right near the top of the slab and he'd done two sky hook moves in a row. And he was quite scared because his last bolt, I think, was a removable bolt that's quite small and not rated very high. And the bolt before that was what Kyle had these really small A bolts that just looked like, you know, it's a small piece of jewellery sort of thing. <laughs> and um, so Dan was a bit bit weaked out there. And he did two consecutive hook moves to try to reach the sort of ledge above. Mm. And 
he left the bottom hook on and clipped it to the rope with a quick draw as if it was a piece. So so for anyone that doesn't know much mm. about aid climbing, a, mm. a, a sky hook that we're talking about is mm. literally just like a um, an, an upside down J essentially of mm. metal that you just place again on like a tiny little ledge or a crimp mm. on the rock. Mm. And essentially all that's keeping it there is your weight on that piece of gear, right? Like yeah. you just stand on it and it just pushes down on the ledge in. or the crimp. Yeah. Um, and then when you move off it, it's essentially just, you know, yeah, m- might stay on or it might not. Yeah, that's it. I'm trying to think of like, uh, oh, it's like a mini grappling hook, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and some hook placements, so you, they come in like a variety of different sizes from really big to really small and different angles on the tips. Um, and some hook placements are super bomber in that just imagine like you've got a small edge and then in the back of the edge there's like a, a crack and yeah. so the hook can seat in that crack and you could, you know, just sort of put it in there, tap it mm. a little bit and it's it's bomber. You could probably leave it there as a piece of gear. Yeah, there's an excellent one on the bolt route at KP yeah. where um, you kind of hook it over this little edge mm. and so it's it's kind of mm. locked in there. Right, yeah. even if you pull it outwards. It's yeah, it'll in. stay in, the rock mm. will keep it in. Bomber. That one's bomber. Yeah. yeah. So the, apparently the one that Dan had wasn't like, wasn't like that. <laughs> it was just a tiny edge, no crack in the back small hook and he just sort of left it there mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how it didn't just pop off but so that's what caught him the that's, sky hook that's what caught him. It. yeah and then you know you're sitting on this hook and because you know you're taking a whip so it's so easy you know nuts get taken out of weird positions yeah. sometimes with the whip but somehow this hook just stayed and um yeah and then he had to like you know pull up dog up the rope to this little <laughs> sky hook and then continue on <laughs> That is that defies all logic to yeah. me. That's insane it's that gone. that stayed on there. Mm. Yeah, and if it didn't, he would have been okay. It's just yeah, you know, you've got like eighty meters of air at that point, so everything could have popped, and he probably would have been alright. But, but he would have taken a screamer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and then he made it up to the top, and we made that the high point for us, and we we called it a trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what made you leave it there? Was it just getting too too long? Yeah, it was it was a bit of a it was an emotional journey a little bit the the first yeah those four pitches. Um, oh mate, if I pitches. whipped on a skyhook, I would have been like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I quit. Well, I'm out. <laughs> that was the sick thing about Dan though. He just picked up and he's like, Oh well, I'll keep going, and he'll get and he still finished the pitch. One time, I fell on a uh, mm. a skyhook mm. on. Um, the mm. uh, stainless anti-climb mm. at Biwa. Yeah. I like sidestepped onto it like a Gumby and it just popped and I took a whipper and I cried. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, props yeah. to Dan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's funny. That would have been such a shock though to expect that it's a solid... I was like, no yeah. one falls when they're aid climbing. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I was a Gumby. I didn't know how to aid climb. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So did you see so sidestep? So it like skated sideways. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of pinged off to right, the side yeah. and popped, and oh, no. yeah, I oh, fell no. on my safety actually. Oh, when, yeah, really? yeah. Oh, were you okay? Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, right. jeez. Yeah, that would hurt. Because you say was your safety in the last bolt? It was, was quite. It? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So I essentially just took a lead fall. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was fine. Okay. <laughs> I was just a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. So yeah, so uh, you made it to the top of that 
pitch um and and so you decided to finish it there because Mm. it was it was a lot (laughs) yeah yeah it was it sort of just we were okay to keep going and we still had another day up our sleeves so we could have kept going but it just felt like a nice a neat spot to sort of tie up the trip because getting past that overhang was was a big ordeal for us it took way longer than we thought um now that i'm now that yeah, my, my mind's back in that space, we actually had five days out there to climb and two days hiking. So it was like a full seven-day trip. And we spent four of those days doing that route. And then one, the last day, we ended up doing the first three or four pitches of the Lost Boys and just for a climbing fun. And um, yeah, we, we made it past the overhangs. And to go any further would be sort of like starting the next chapter. And because it, it's another 100 metres of... Or 100, 10 meters of slab onto the next set of overhangs and so it sort of felt nice because we were closing that sort of first sections chapter and it would feel weird to go do another 30 meters and, and get to this point where you're like oh i just wish we could get a bit further up there and then have to bail um plus it made it a bit trickier with our fixed ropes as well because i think from that point on we would have to start we ran out of static line and so i think we would have to start um fixing our climbing rope because we had two we were climbing on doubles which would just be a bit tricky because you'd have to fix the climbing rope then just climb on a single that was sort of the point where we'd want to haul up the portal edges and start making a wall camp just a quick note here about climbing on doubles there are a few reasons why people belay on two ropes but in this instance a first descent or an adventure climb your protection probably isn't going to go up the wall in a straight line as is often the case on a sport route Having one rope clipped into all the gear on one side of the wall and one rope clipped in on the other side can significantly reduce rope drag. So obviously you want to go back and finish off the route. Um, And you sort of have a couple of little, you you showed me a a sort of a semi-topo looking thing Mm. where you've got a picture of the rock and you've sort of drawn where you think the route's going to go. Yeah. Um, But the issue now with, Mount Warning is mm. access, right? Like the, yeah. the track's closed, the walking track that takes you to the summit is closed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we know that the traditional custodians don't mm. want people to climb at least the tourist track. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, how do, you, how do you get around that? Yeah. Or do you get around it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're not, yeah, we're not sure what's, what's right, really. Um, because the situation's a little bit cloudy. So if if the fact of the matter is that um, traditional custodians don't want people on the mountain at all, then you just got to respect that. Like we, even though, you know, we put in a lot of time into, into, into this thing and it's like this big thing in our minds and it really feels like the next step for, for our sort of climbing. Um, like it, that pales in comparison to, in my mind, to like hundreds of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years of, um, you know, cultural significance to a culture. So, so in in my mind, if if that is the case, then just leave it, and it's like okay, <laughs> we'll climb somewhere else. Um, but if if the the case is that it's just the summit or the summit ridges that are the culturally significant areas but the bases and the cliffs themselves are are acceptable then then yeah I'd love to go back 
yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you said your plan is potentially to try and get in contact with traditional custodians and see what's yeah. acceptable. Yeah. Do you think that's something that we should be doing more of as a community? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's it's hard for me to say because I haven't taken those steps yet. So I don't yeah. know what the nature of it is like. I've heard from some people that it's really hard to actually find who who to talk to. And sometimes you you may not be talking to, you know, an actual Aboriginal group. Um, you'll be talking to their, their legal representatives. And so it's hard to actually, you know, hear the story. But I'm not sure because I haven't, I haven't walked that path yet. But I think it's like super important if if we want to have like meaningful access ongoing to yeah to have that as like a team effort and to find some some hopefully some compromises for areas and some areas might there might be like a a compromise and that we don't use chalk because it's like visually ugly um or we might just not climb there or they we may not place bolts because we're you know we're changing the rock face um, or you only climb there certain times of the year, or maybe there'd be areas that only women can climb or only men can climb. Um, I don't know. I think those are all like, those are fine options. It's, it's very easy to have like, to, to be on like polar opposite sides of the debate. And like one, one of the main arguments is that, you know, we're still enjoying these areas and um, these areas are here for us to enjoy and we're appreciating it. How can we not appreciate it without, without us being there? And I think that's a valid argument too, but it's, it's easy to forget how these places have been so significant for so long for some people. And I think we've got to try to have that conversation anyway, because nothing good can come from just pleading ignorance and just going for it irrespective of anybody else's wishes. Yeah. yeah, well, like I said to you last time we talked, I think there's been enough kind of um, coverage of, of these issues at this point where, yeah. you know, pleading ignorance is not really an option anymore. We no. know enough that we need to yeah. we need to figure something out. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's hard to know what that is. Yeah. And it's hard to because, um, you know, any, any spirituality is subjective and open mm. to interpretation. Mm. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a challenging path forward, but mm. I hope that you can find a way to uh, get back on Mount Warning um, yeah. in a way that everybody feels yeah. like they're respected and yeah, you know, like so. they've been listened to. Yeah. That would be awesome yeah. because it's an incredible place to climb. Mm. Yeah, it could be something like, okay, you're allowed to climb there, but you're not allowed to top out to get to the summit ridge. And the idea was to, to have a friend out and to, to film it and he'd have to go in from the top, but maybe that's just not on the cards. Um, or it may be, you're not allowed to place any more bolts, and which will make it very spicy. But, you know, we can give it a crack. Lots more hooks moves, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, come on, Dan. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who might want to get into first ascending? Yeah, it's everyone approaches it different ways. My my approach to it is first ask does this need to be bolted? And I haven't done much bolting really. Um when I first started, I was really attracted to the idea of just like putting up crags, having my name on every single line and you know you're you're bolting for the for the glory. But then quickly I realized that, yeah, it's, we actually have a lot of rock, you know, and 
Sure, if you want to climb the same style, then you might be limited. But if you expand your styles a little bit to like climbing some slabby stuff or slightly adventure stuff or trad stuff, then we've got so much in Southeast Queensland. And most places do have enough that you don't need more to bolt more things. Um, and so I think my advice would be, like, why do you want to put up this first ascent? Is it for like the glory or the ego reasons and that only? Then maybe, you know, do some soul searching. Does the rock need to be bolted? Like just a couple of days ago, I was exploring this new area and it's got maybe 25 or 30 potential lines. But, you know, it's not that great. It's like we've got areas that are, that are nicer and and it's, I just don't think it's worth bolting really. I think it's it was like really nice remote little area and I was sitting up there watching the sunset by myself and it was like this beautiful little pristine wilderness and well, mini wilderness it's Queensland but but yeah and so I think not every place is worth developing um, but but if you do yeah check about the access issues firstly um, there's it's I think gone are the days uh, of yesteryear where there were only 20 or 30 climbers and some people were a lot more accepting to, to people developing um, climbs and having people going through their backyards so now you've got to take into account a lot of these issues, like like the cultural significance issues, seeing if there's like artwork or if it's a culturally significant site. Private access, are you going through private access? Or like what we've seen um, here at Minto Crags, even though it's completely public access within our rights to be there, are there locals nearby who you could potentially put off? Because you're not, you're trespassing with your sound, this might not be a legal thing, but this might just be a moral thing. You're trespassing with your sound and because you're disturbing the peace of the area. And so you've got to take that into account, plus the, the flora and fauna impact in that. Is this place uh, worth digging, you know, cutting in a track and that impact and then the, the ongoing impact of people coming and the unfortunate fact that you're going to have the lowest common denominator bringing in dogs to their pets or just like pooping on the path and being disrespectful to the environment. So we like sort of take that into, into account. Um, that would be my advice for like, if I should do this, um, on actually getting into it, um, with bolting, it's just like find a mentor and like ask somebody, can you take me out and bolt? And you know, everyone's that, you know, there are people keen to teach um, other people and there are, there are always people developing some crag. So just sort of ask around and generally if you're keen and you're earnest, they'll, they'll help you out. So don't be afraid to ask. Um, and if they're not keen to help, they'll probably direct you to somebody that, somebody that will. Another really good way is talking with um, the Safer Cliffs Queensland and asking to help re-bolt because they're, they're constantly updating bolts and um, bringing our hardware up to standard. So just ask if you can help out and then you can learn actually by helping the community and then you can gain your skills that way. Mm. And more on that, um, make sure you donate to ACAQ mm. because they do yeah. all of the crag maintenance and they do a really good job. Yeah, I, I think they, they don't do the crag maintenance. Though. Oh, I think Safer Cliffs do the crag maintenance. And so direct your money to them if you want new anchors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but ACAQ, they do all the access stuff. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Okay, my mistake. So yeah. uh, both of them, ACAQ and yeah. Safer Cliffs Queensland, yeah. both definitely worth your attention yeah. and funds, mm. any funds that you have. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, and then with Trab first ascending, my, my uh, advice would be 
to make sure you've got the ground skills and make sure that you prepare well, like a like a Ryan Ziarchi. And but then also don't be afraid to just give it a go. And because you can always just back off wherever you are. Like what's leaving a couple nuts or a cam on the cliff? Like you've learnt heaps. So just give it a go. And the best place to do that is probably Canyon Gorge, I'd say. So. Yeah, can you gorgeous dope? But I yeah. uh, ignore the approach instructions in the guidebook yes. because they're all lies. Yeah. <laughs> and only climb in the north because the south, there's a lot of culturally significant areas and paintings and stuff. So Good to know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There actually um, are some amazing um, rock paintings out there. Mm. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Alex, See? for sharing your story. Ah, cheers for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bail List and for bearing with me while I took a little extra time to edit this one. I really wanted to make sure it was a good resource for anyone wanting to learn more about aid climbing tools, about first descenting and about adventure climbing techniques. So I hope this was helpful for that. I'd like to acknowledge the Bundjalung people, the traditional custodians of Wollumbin or Mount Warning, and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Make sure you go check out The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram at The Bail List and get in touch if you've got a story to share. Check out our amazing supporters on the socials as well at Awesome Woodies and at Wild Earth Australia. Don't forget Wild Earth's Brisbane store opens at the end of the month. Who else is psyched? I definitely am. See you next time.